Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about the science of dream teams. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever to creating the world that we all want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me on the show today is Mike Zani. Mike, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Maureen. My business partner and I, who met in business school, we buy used companies with other people's money. We were so full of ourselves coming out of business school. We thought we knew enough about strategy to buy this company. We knew enough about finance to know what to pay for it. We knew we had a good enough network that we could finance the acquisition of this business. But we totally missed, we totally missed the people side of the business. So we, we acquired this company. We looked at the 45 sets of blinking eyes looking back at us, we're saying, we're your new owners, we're your new managers, and we kind of didn't have the team we needed. So we went on this journey to get better at the talent piece. And that's when I sort of started my, my talent and winning with and through teams journey at that singular company. Tell us where you went to school and about your sailing experience, please. Well, I was a professional sailor and a sailing coach. I went to Brown University as a geochemist, but didn't use any of my geochemistry, but, you know, ended up coaching at the 1996 Olympics. And it was a really romantic time in my life. I learned, I went on my people journey back then, not even having known it, but got into the marine industry. We did a roll up of small sailboat manufacturers. You may have heard of the sunfish and the laser, but the sailing industry is not a great place to learn you know, refined business stacking, which, which is why I applied to business school. I applied to three business schools, got rejected from two, but was lucky enough to get into Harvard Business School. As I think they're a wingnut applicant, they sort of let me in for spice up the stew, I guess. Thank you. Sophisticated assessments, data, and software are giving CEOs and managers within any organization or industry detailed insights into human behavior. As a CEO of the Predictive Index, Mike has witnessed firsthand, as he's talked about, how the application of data and science can impact and completely change the way we function in our professional lives. In his new book, The Science of Dream Teams, How Talent Optimization Can Drive Engagement, Productivity, and Happiness, Mike details the data-driven approach to talent strategy that makes hiring, motivating, and managing people more efficient and effective than ever. Mike, let's start with, you called this the science of dream teams. How do you define dream teams and why should our listeners care about dream teams? Well, having this unique opportunity, being the CEO of the Predictive Index, we have 40 million 
data points on people. We have hundreds of thousands of data points on, on jobs and teams and company performance. So it was really almost my obligation to take this data and add a little science to the old school art or black box art of creating talent and, and creating dream teams. So in looking at this data, it's not that a team is necessarily good or bad. They may have idiosyncrasies, but are they a good or bad fit for the work that they need to do? So it's not only about knowing your team and how you fit on it. And is it a homogeneous team? Is it a heterogeneous team? But it's saying, are we actually a good fit for our strategy? Are we a good fit for our job? So I, I can't tell you if it's a dream team or not until I find out what are they trying to do. Do you have a definition of how you identify dream teams? It sounds like you have the right people with the right chemistry to accomplish the strategy. And I think that's crucial, the idea that there is no right or wrong team generically. It's all about the strategy, the culture, what we're trying to do together that defines dream or one of Dante's rings. Well, let me give an example of a hospital. There's a center of excellence here in Boston. You know, it's affiliated with a medical school. It is one of the most renowned institutions in the country. And their leadership team is actually pretty conservative, risk averse. And this shouldn't surprise us. When you think about a hospital and you think about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm. There is a promise that when you walk into a hospital that they give you the right medicine in the right dose at the right time. So shocking to exactly no one, a hospital senior management team becomes pretty risk intolerant and they only develop best practices and they develop them slowly. So they are a fantastic team to run a hospital. Now, if you took our senior management team, we're a 215 person company growing really fast, trying to reinvent the talent space. Our senior management team is about breaking the rules, about doing something no one has done before. So if you ask that hospital team, very accomplished, knows each other well, to run our company, they would probably fail. They wouldn't go fast enough. They wouldn't be innovative enough. And if you asked our senior management team to go run that hospital, even for a week, we'd break a process and all of a sudden you'd be looking in the hallways and there'd be gurneys filling up with people with toe tags. You're like, what happened? You go, we broke a process. We'll eventually fix it, but I have no idea what's going on right now. And it's one of these things that if you look inside companies, or if you look inside teams, that you can find a high function as well as high dysfunction. And, you know, we try and, if, if someone's close, you try and move them to higher functioning. If they need to be blown up, so be it. Let's blow up the team. You know, sometimes it's trained to stretch. Sometimes it's augment, but it, it really needs to look at what's the team dynamic and what's the work to be done. I really appreciate that your description is significantly more nuanced than what are the three bullet points, that it is putting the right people in the room to accomplish the strategy. And it sounds like it's ever changing, especially in the current environment as our organizations are changing, our ecosystems changing, and frankly, what people are facing in their entire lives Folks who were brilliant yesterday may not be showing up as quite as brilliant today or vice versa. I certainly think these exogenous effects, crisis, you know, pandemic, starting to work from home. I've seen people shine in these environments where they, they can really reinvent themselves. And you've seen other people who are great performers really not find their footing. And 
this dynamic change, it probably changed the nature of the work that needed to be done. And how we show up together to do it. There's a ton of work just to be done on team dynamics. Another example that I use is if you take a school system, you know, teachers, they do not have the luxury of letting students fall through the cracks. It's like hour to hour, day to day, week to week. They're trying to progress this heterogeneous group through a curriculum. And their success is, is about student success. And they have to work together collaboratively to make sure these kids don't fall through the cracks. Whereas school administrators, they're not thinking about the day-to-day, hour-to-hour. They're thinking quarter and really year-to-year. And they're thinking in their heads, gee, you know, our maths and sciences are good, but our arts are kind of weak. If we can bolster the arts, maybe we can get access to new state or federal funding to improve our school. So you have these two, these two entities, school administrators on one hand, teachers on the other. They don't traditionally like each other or respect each other, but they have different missions. They have different mandates. And, you know, if I'm coming in to consult to a school system, it's like you both have different missions and mandates. You're probably appropriately designed for those missions and mandates. What you need to do is figure out how to communicate together, go into each other's camps, empathize with each other, understand those real differences so that you can actually do the work better. So when you, when you have that team that is super heterogeneous with two different goals, how do you make sure they don't tear themselves apart? or create a toxic environment, which long-term will cause them to fail. That's the perfect lead-in to then to the question, what is talent optimization and how can it help leaders define their workplaces and discover the metrics to create their dream teams? Talent optimization is really a new discipline. You know, instead of doing talent the old way, which was very much seat of the pants, bringing your intended or unintended bias to bear when you look at people. Now, look, I look at CEOs they, or, or leaders, and they hire people in their own image. Someone walks in with a neck tattoo. They just can't get their arms around that. They're doing unstructured interviews with resumes, which are the biggest piece of fiction in business, and they think they can build a world-class team. And we have this parallel, and it's a, it's a pretty amazing parallel. As even casual sports fans, if your team loses – on any given Sunday. On Monday morning, the newspapers are calling for the head of the person who let us down. Say it's the quarterback. They're like, this is the third week in a row. We want their head. So we, we are incredibly brutal with our sports teams on wanting the best talent, taking not even a week or two of failure. But in, in business, we don't apply those same dynamics. We don't apply the same rigor. We don't apply the same analysis. We let a sub-average team member stay with us for years without calling for their quote-unquote head. So we look back 30 years in sport, and there was this massive shift from sort of subjective, qualitative, to objective, quantitative. And it's often referred to as, you know, saber metrics or money ball. And it started in baseball, and it, it propagated to every sport. And now if you look at sports, it's one of the most data-driven things that we have, most humans have contact with. And the same scouts who used to go to stadiums observing people, they're not. They're sitting in the basement of their own stadium with four screens around them trying to uncover this data and analytics or the science of dream teams. They're trying to look in to find out how can I predict 
world-class talent going forward, given the work we have to do or the job there is to be done. And I, I think it's really the transformation of talent optimization is each and every person embracing this new discipline so that they try and optimize the situation they're in with their job fit, the team they're on, the culture they're in, because it is predictable and you can move it in a favorable direction if you work at it. I'm a huge fan of assessments. As a person doing leadership development and coaching, just like you use physicians as an example, I expect when I go to the doctor, if there's something wrong, that they diagnose me and that there's a structured framework that is data-driven and validated that they're not just going to draw my blood and make a different conclusion that now some weird mutation is normal. There were markers. And I appreciate that in the human performance space, just in job performance for leaders and employees, that we now have structured assessments like you're talking about and data to remove bias. I know that you do this kind of a fit for role, what's required for the job, what does the employee do? And tell me, what's the probability that they're going to be successful? And it doesn't matter if their name is male or female or which nationality, and really creates a lot more opportunity for equity in hiring. Yeah, I have a, a fun example that one of my friends runs Mass Bay Brewing Company, which brews Harpoon beer. He has lots of friends because he brews beer. But he is a good friend from a business perspective, and he hired a new salesperson uh, or promoted. It was from within. And he says he was so proud. He goes, could you look at this person's behavioral profile and say what you think about this job, about the fit for this job? And I said, wow, this is a great fit. As I understand your process, this is a very relationship-driven sale. And when you sell beer, you're trying to convince the distributor to take your promotions and push more of your beer than one of your competitors. And when you're trying to sell into a restaurant, you're trying to get your tap handles to replace other people's tap handles. It's often a relationship sale. And I said, perfect fit for the job. Your gap is going to be, there's going to be no quantitative propensity with this person. And you have a big sales team. Someone should be running the numbers. And I said, I think you have a big enough sales team that maybe we should have an assistant to the head of sales who's going to be the quant jockey, if you will. Mm -hmm. So we built a behavioral profile together and we have this button, find profiles like this. So we press the button on his 300 employees and up pops a bunch of names. Three of them were already in the sales department. And he goes, oh, that'd be, that would be good. That would be good. That would be good. So we populated three names that he had never thought of. That was already in the sales department. And he ended up promoting one of them into that role. And it's amazing, it had nothing to do with the name, the gender, what school they went to, what sports they played, or whether they showed up at the last Christmas party and maybe had too much beer. It was just, they're going to be a great fit for the role that you're trying to get them to do. And so it sounds like in that way, you're eliminating bias. And I want to raise the question that I know a lot of people are talking about right now assessments, test to evaluate, predict and employ human talent as a crucial function, but there are times that they can lead to biased results that exclude some traits over assess other traits. 
things like grit. And I've worked with some assessments that bias introverts versus extroverts or English speakers versus non-English speakers. How do you navigate? Because again, I believe that the predictive index is one of the top assessment tools available in this space. It is expensive to validate your tools to make sure that they do not have adverse impact. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of scientific work, but you need to make sure a, a few things are true. That, that your assessment measures what you say your assessment measures. So we have a metric on dominance. Are you a high dominant person as we define dominance? Or are you a low dominance person as we define it? So you have to measure what you say you're going to measure. Two, you have to make sure you're repeatable that on a test retest basis that you come up with the same, you know, sort of pattern within margin of error. And third, you have to make sure that you're not biasing against protected groups. And this is difficult, but we used to have words in our assessment that men used to over check courageous and women used to over check fashionable. And we've got to jettison those words because we're not trying to measure whether you're a male or female. We're trying to measure other elements, and those things just cloud the effectiveness or efficacy of our science. And there are tools that are still good tools, like the, the Myers-Briggs type indicator mm-hmm. on their TF difference has gender bias, which shouldn't surprise anyone when they look into TNF, but it means you shouldn't use it for hiring. If you use the MBTI for hiring, you're going to unintentionally impart gender bias on the TF, you know, the thinking, feeling dimension. So some tools that haven't gone through the rigor of proper validity against adverse impact shouldn't be used for certain things like hiring. They still can be used for interpersonal dynamics and such as that. And you brought up grit. I love grit. Angela Duckworth is brilliant. She wrote the book on grit. And I had a chance to ask her, how do you use grit for mission critical hiring? And how do you test for it accurately? And she says, you really can't. And then there was this great example that came up in the discussion, which is the army does it. They put you through a 12-week boot camp, and you can't fake it. At the end of 12 weeks, you're like, the people over here have a lot of grit. The people here, not as much. You know, the people here, not even enough to still be in the military. But most people don't have 12 weeks or the infrastructure to run a boot camp to actually measure grit effectively, usually it's left to a five-minute assessment. And I've, I've taken a grit assessment, and it usually sounds like when you approach a challenge, do you attack it the hill like a mountain climber, or do you roll into the fetal position? And uh, I might be more of the latter, but I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> On a hiring assessment, sucking your thumb isn't something you admit. You can get a 50 out of 50 on a grit assessment or a zero out of 50 on a grit assessment without changing who you are. You could just say, I I think I figured it out. And as you talk about resumes being fiction, so are some of the assessments we take if it's a one to five and five's always good and one's always bad. Unless you are unwise in your approach, many people will be more optimistic about their capabilities. You know, most people, when they finish our assessments are like, that's it. And we, we use a technique called stimulus response that some people are stimulated by some answers and not by others. And we don't do forced choice. So you don't feel uncomfortable. It says, are you pressure prompted or are you an early starter? And you might be like, well, either it depends 
you know, certain situations, we don't put you into that sort of hybrid zone. We try and make sure that it's, you only really respond to things that really truly stimulate you in in an affirmative way, I should say. We talked a little bit about, and you hit on Myers-Briggs, and I, I have a very strong sense of people using assessments in a way that is supportive of the people they're assessing and the outcome they're trying to get. And using assessments improperly damages people's self-esteem. It damages their career options. They can face litigation. It's significantly problematic. And often the person picking the assessment doesn't recognize the ethical obligation they have in choosing a tool. They're just trying to, you know, knock something off the to-do list. Can you talk a little bit about using kind of why the predictive index, but a little deeper than it's our stuff and it's good, what helps the person choosing to use an assessment without writing a book on it know what to use and when? That's a difficult question. So when I see a company using an assessment that I think is suboptimal, and if I had met them at the time of the decision, that I would encourage them to use something else. But if I see them using it responsibly, and I see that it's gained cultural traction in their organization, so they're using the language, they've given the gift of communication to their people to start self-fixing teams, relationships, that's great. I'm like, keep using what you've got. You're using it responsibly. And I've seen people even use some of the most highly validated tools irresponsibly. So it really comes down to try and pick tools that have gone through the validity studies to make sure they're doing all the right stuff and pick tools that you can use pre and post hire because you don't want to use one tool for selecting people only to the day after they start to use another tool to manage them. There are a lot of tools out there that work pre and post hire. And then it is your obligation. Don't hide the data from people. Share it. Give them this gift, this language, this, this communication methodology. You want to push down those fixes, those decision-making issues. So Maureen, if, if you're my boss and we were just thrown together because of some situation and you're trying to get the best out of me, I want to kind of get the best out of you because I want a favor to get my next promotion or what, what have you. I want to give you what you need And you probably want to give me what I need. And if we do that, we're going to have a long, happy relationship together. And that's really the promise land where you give your people the tools so they can understand each other. Well, and certainly increase the probability of success. Some things have enough headwinds that we want to give as much tailwinds as possible. Yeah, there's no no question. There's a lot of headwinds in the world today. Before we got started, you gave me an example of when you were coaching, you got on the boat and you assessed people pretty quickly. Now you weren't giving them a predictive index, but you were evaluating the team members using the, probably a similar algorithm that you had in your head, just not with computer scoring. Yeah. Being, being a professional sailor is, unless you're at the America's cup is, is less romantic than a lot of other professional sports. Typically it's typified by wealthy individuals who own multi-million dollar race boats pay you to come on their boat and ideally win. Whenever I got on a new boat, I asked the question, are we trying to win today or are we working for a bigger goal down the timeline where this team is practicing to win X? And unfortunately, nine out of 10 people had a short-term view. It was like, nope, winning today, all costs. 
which means you're going to battle to quote Donald Rumsfeld. You're going to battle with the people you have, not the people you want. So you step on board and you're trying to evaluate what is the talent that we have? What can this boat do? Can we get the sails up and down fast? You know, is it a cohesive group? Have they worked together before? And within about a half an hour, you would identify these pockets of, you know, joys and frustrations. You know, someone who's really positive and should be given more responsibility and a louder voice and other people who are negative and were second guessing and not being supportive of their teammates that need to be given less of a voice or even given an opportunity to get off the boat. You'd ask questions and often, often the negative person might have been related to the owner in some way, unfortunately, but you had to win right away. And I took a lot of these lessons into business because I think the companies that are trying to win today at all costs are really mortgaging their future. They are overspending on new people instead of having good learning and development programs for their existing people. That they get enamored with the $100,000 boutique retained search functionality. And often these companies are backed by private equity or venture capital who want a return on investment. And part of return on investment is time. So all of those investors want you to go fast. So if you have this time function that you often try and win today. And if you go back to our sports analogies, companies that want to win today at all costs, they sacrifice future draft picks and their farm system in order to win today. And they eventually, they might win, but they don't win long-term. The great franchises that are consistently good every year and win more than their fair share do both. They recruit and hire well, but they also do the learning and development, take that long-term view. So those rich sailors that I was trying to help win, it should have been both. Yeah, we'd love to win today, but we are developing for the future. And unfortunately, they didn't have, a lot of those teams didn't have that mode. They probably got rich by building for the future someplace. It's interesting that they didn't take that into their sports. It is interesting. I do think there are individuals who've seen success in, say, business, who want to then become sort of Corinthian athletes, may they're not as good at the sport as they were at, you know, running the investment bank or the law firm or what have you. And that they're trying to have that same power, authority and control and maybe quick victories. They like to get to the top as fast as possible. Those are difficult in sport. The people who do well in sport, they put the dedication in for long, long time periods. Let's shift gears a little bit. You talked earlier about how predictive index can help us build as you just did in in the sports analogy of winning now versus building for the future, we've just come through and are going through phase two of the global pandemic. How does something like the COVID pandemic allow leadership teams the time to rethink and remake the company? And also, how does it create space for leaders to themselves rethink who they are? Because as we have discussed, some folks who were exceptional pre-pandemic aren't performing as well as they would have liked, and others are significantly outperforming what we would have expected from them. I think it's important, if you look at the start of this pandemic, I mean, not let's not jump forward to today with the Delta variant sort of scaring us, and probably rightly so. If we go back, you know, 16 months, and we look at 40 million people losing their job in 10 weeks, and then everyone's starting to work from home, 
that I do believe the psychometric assessments, broadly speaking, you know, tools like the predictive index, talent optimization platforms that give you data. World's changed. You know, there's a company called Toast, which makes software for restaurants. They had to quickly reinvent themselves. They weren't making software for sit-down restaurants anymore because no one was sitting down, but they had to quickly say, let's make software for takeout delivery because that's going to be the booming phase. People went through changes and morphings like that all over the place. So we had to say, gee, the work that we were doing is very different now. How do we reorganize the team? How do we design you know, sub-teams or groups? And if we're going to have a reduction in force, what do we want the company to look like when we come out the other end? And really architecting using the design feature and functionality of talent optimization. And then you had a part two, which is, wow, we're hiring people who we've never seen in person. We're trying to onboard them into a culture which is no longer contained by a building, but a culture that's in the ether. And using tools to help understand each other better, that you need tools that work in remote setting and when you've never met physically and in person. And I think this third component about leadership needing to change, that it, it's very true. You can't lead the same way. I think it's, it's Jamie Dimon is insisting that, and I really respect his leadership capabilities, but he's insisting everyone's coming back. If I was Jamie Dimon's closest competitor, I would sit there and say, anyone who doesn't want to work at Jamie Dimon's place, you can come work with us. We're taking you all. We want the best and brightest. If you want to work remotely, we're going to do that. Now, some positions, if you're a bank teller, it'll take a few years for it to be completely remote. And they do have remote bank tellers where you look at them at a TV screen instead. But I think it's a competitive advantage when you do reinvent yourself, when you're willing to say, even if he liked it better before, I don't fault him for that. I liked it better before too. <laughs> but I actually have seen our diversity has gotten so much better because we're not just trying to hire in Boston. The Boston tech environment is very competitive. Now we can hire anywhere in the world. And we're, we're trying not to go too many time zones away, but we actually, our, our diversity has increased, our speed to hire has increased, that it can be a competitive advantage. So I think the leaders who really embrace the change and are trying to make it a competitive advantage, this new environment, I think are, are really going to set themselves up well for the new competitive environment that we're going to see in the next few years. Well, think about how much we've expanded people who have now access to jobs. So for lots of reasons, people are trailing spouses, they're taking care of families, they're taking care of aging parents. A lot of people have constraints that they can't move to Boston or move somewhere around and commute into the city, but they can certainly pop online, especially if they don't have to be, quote, sitting at their desk from eight in the morning until five in the afternoon. They can take a break to attend to the parent or the child or the other things that need to be done in life. You significantly increase, to your point, access to talent and you've got tools now to assess, are they the right talent for both the competencies and the culture? It's so important. Our, our mission is better work, better world. I think if you get someone in the right job, if you improve their relationship with their boss and their peers, if you put them on a team where they feel like they can be themselves and be successful, that they fit with the culture. And now with this piece that 
maybe people enjoy working from home better because they get to see more games of their children or, or do the school drop-offs or, or be better with homeschooling. So I, I think what's important is if people are more energized about what they do, one, the company gets more discretionary effort, which is great. But two, we send home people to be better spouses, neighbors, parents, siblings, and we're making the world a better place. I mean, we have a responsibility to do this. So we've actually tracked this. We're getting more productivity out of our employees now that they're remote. Some of it is the commute. They're giving back some of it to us. But some of it, there's less interruption. And you might not like it as much. You may have to relearn to fall in love with it in a different way. But you can be more productive working from home in this new world. In many cases. I also don't have you know, a two-bedroom house with six dogs and five kids. There are some constraints. And over time, many of us will work those out. I totally agree with you. So we had 60,000 square feet of relatively empty workspace. We let people apply to come into our offices during COVID. If they had a family situation, they could have been with an abusive spouse. They could have been like, no, if I stay home all day, I'm, I'm going to drink too much. Whatever the case was, if they wanted to get out, and a handful of people took us up on this and said, no, we'll do this. And of course, you need to help those people in those special situations. But over time, you start giving home office stipends to people create a better home office. Maybe consider taking your third room and turning it into an office and maybe companies are going to start paying for that. It would be nice to create, again, we're still in a world of haves and have nots and people like you and I probably aren't sitting in our bathroom working unless we choose to, we have choices. And there are some people that that may be the only private room they have and they often don't turn their videos on. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Let's hope. And, uh, and thank you for not turning your video on. <laughs> so how can leaders use data and feedback to better manage their team in a time of crisis and maintain the culture? You talked about it being the culture and the ethos rather than the culture and the walls. The culture and the ethos is hard. I, I think you need to do more sentiment analysis and sentiment polling. We're not using it as heavily as we did in the, in the heart of the pandemic, but now we have monthly PITV. We used to have weekly PITV, which was, it was really just a town hall. We let people ask any question they wanted. And we did a lot of quick sentiment polling during those periods of time because we wanted to make sure that we were understanding how they were feeling. We would ask open-ended questions like word clouds. How are you feeling today? How are things trending? Is this sustainable? To really get a sense of where your people are and how things are changing. Are you asking tough questions that maybe you don't even, are you still feeling connected to the mission of the company? Are you still feeling that our culture is intact? If our culture is changing, how is it changing? And if you're going to ask, you have to be willing to also solve. Because if you just ask and they tell you all this corrective stuff and you never do anything about it, that is a, a challenge. So be honest when you can. You go, hey, you told us there's five things we need to work on. We're going to be able to approach these two in a timely fashion, but we want you to know we heard all five. We view these are the two most important. Now, someone out there is going, well, I had number five, and I wish you were working on it, but I'm glad you at least heard me, and I'm glad we're moving in the right direction. So there are a lot of tools that I would loosely call sentiment polling, and they don't even have to be HR tools. We use this tool called Menti, 
M-E-N-T-I.com. It's great. But during all of our meetings, people have their phones out and they're answering poll questions with their phones and it's populating live. And you're just like, that's brilliant. And it costs us basically nothing to have tools like that. One of our regular guests is the COO for a company called Aware HQ, and they do a lot of sentiment work. And it's been interesting to watch the case studies, especially in the work from home, as they can, they have an AI tool that monitors the language people are using in email. Yeah, natural language processing. There's a lot of words you have to pull out because they're noise words, but you can get to the root cause of things. We have a bunch of PhDs in IO psychology and data science. So we get to pull those levers. The natural language processing tools are becoming democratized. So a normal company can start playing with them and learn from them. But I I do think there's an element of leaders need to start with themselves. That the self-awareness of how they're projecting in these times of crisis, how they are leading the company, are they self-aware? Are they working on their own things? Are they going to be open and transparent enough to say, like Jamie Dimon, I didn't like working remote. Now, the answer didn't have to be, so we all have to go back. But it, it, it might be, I didn't like working remote. I want to get better at it as a company so that we like it again. That might be the better answer. But I think it starts with the leaders really opening up to their, their self-awareness and you know, their strengths and weaknesses. Our leadership development programs focus on starting with my own vision and values and and you've hit heavily on that, and then strengths and weaknesses. Who am I compared to who I want to be and what I want my organization to be? So to your point, I, as a leader of an organization, need to know who I am. And as the world is changing, know where I fit. You know, one of the pieces of data I heard, I think earlier this week, 47% of the population of the U.S. is dealing with clinical issues of anxiety and depression. So not the, I'm having a bad day, because that's probably all of us on occasion. But if this data is anywhere near accurate, then we as leaders need to relate to our teams differently than we did two years ago, where we weren't having the same amount of anxiety. It's hard to be fully engaged if one out of every two people on your team is, and I say clinically, again, not just having a bad day, but seriously struggling with their situation. I'm a huge proponent of leaders taking the first step and, ha- and taking the onus on themselves to start this openness and transparency so that you can at least talk about it. And in the, in the book, I, I talk about this framework called front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. And progenitor of this is this Bain consultant, Jim Allen, who's in the UK office. And Jim came up with this front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt says on on the front of your t-shirt are all the things that you've been given jobs your whole life. It's what your parents would brag about you on. And when you hear them, you puff your chest, you you get real proud. But the back of t-shirt things are just as long of a list and just as easily articulated by other people when you walk away from them. The beautiful part of the the analogy of the back of t-shirt is how do you see what's on the back of your t-shirt? How do you either contort your body or ask others? The answer is you've, you've got to go on this lifelong journey to say, hey, I'm interested in finding out what's on the back. I'm sure it's a long and painful list, but you're never going to solve them. You're only going to live with them and find out their triggers. But if the boss 
says, hey, I've got stuff on the back of my T-shirt that I need to work on, and I want your help. When you see me do these things, I want you to interject. I, for one, don't always listen, and I sometimes run people over. I've given my employees a safety word, words Ticonderoga. It doesn't just slip out out of your mouth occasionally. Like You have to intentionally use it, but the idea is that when I hear it, it smacks me in the head that says, I'm doing it again. And when an employee realizes that you're willing to be vulnerable and open and transparent about what you're working on, and you work with them on their same front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt, and they work on their direct reports, front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt, you can create a more self-aware organization where it's now permissible to say, I'm not just having a bad day. I've had 27 bad days this month. And I'm really not doing that well. And I need to change something. And I would like your help, company, in trying to make this better. And maybe it's a leave of absence. Maybe it's a change in style of work. Uh, maybe it's permission to you know, not have video on because I'm working out of a, uh, a commode, you know, the laboratory. But the onus is on leadership to start this process because it'll never start if the owner's like, and the, the leaders are like, nope, I'm all buttoned up. Everything's fine here. You know, me and my army of uh, people who support me, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. So you both run the company, the Predictive Index, and you coach people, right? Like, how do you help those senior leaders recognize that it's not an issue of them, those people over there, but I'm fine? That this has to start with the CEO and down. I mean, I personally can't not coach. You know, I was a coach when I was 26. I bring that as a often used tool when I'm leader of a company. So yes, I coach my direct reports. I help them coach their direct reports. I sometimes do skip levels so I can help with their direct reports and trying to create this coaching environment so people can do that. I mean, the Predictive Index has 750 certified partners who also coach people so I get to hear their best practices. They're, they're way better coaches than I am or could ever be. You know, there are people like yourself, Maureen, who do this for a living. I create tools that help them do what they do for a living. But the actually being there, working with the maybe not open-minded leader who you have to crack their veneer in order to get them to start going down this journey, there are tips and techniques that take practice to do that. Do you have a couple recommendations? Because I'm thinking there are probably thousands of people listening right now saying, I wish my boss would do this, but they're not going to. Any recommendations from these thousands of people who are using are your certified folks? Well, I actually put chapter two as a, as a free chapter to the book, and that's the one on front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. So if you wanted someone to read 25 pages on the framework to read it, maybe the way to take a boss to it is say, listen, I want to go on this journey. I'd like you to help me. And they might be like, wow, that's interesting. Maybe I should do that too. Or they do it with you. And you might, if you're daring enough, provocatively, have you thought about what's on the front and back of your t-shirt? And because there is, there is a wake-up call. I, I do think that there's an element to talent optimization is you need to smack someone in the head with the proverbial two by four. Like you can't do it the way it's been done for years because that's not working. Now, I don't want people listening to this to run off to their boss and tell them to find out what does in the back of the t-shirt and get fired. So 
there is still hierarchy. And if you have a really close-minded leadership, it may be difficult to impossible. I, I know that there are coaches out there listening, low probability people who are going to change. Maybe you need to change Blur bosses. <laughs> you know, I love the idea of, we talk a lot about learning partners versus mentors because there's still a hierarchical. And I realize if your boss is making your stay, go decision, they're still your boss. So acknowledged. And if I can be a learning partner with my boss, invite them to the process, ask them to engage in it. To your point, it takes the right boss. And it seems like we're entering an era where more people are receptive to these kinds of conversations than were in the past. I think so. When you look at the average tenure of bosses today, it's actually pretty short. I think if a boss is paying attention, they're going to realize that they are at risk as well. And they need to be on this journey of, of self-development. I will say that there's this giant thing going on that people call it the great resignation. We're actually referring to it internally as the great retention. So I have asked people, it's usually easier to fix the job at the place you're at than it is to go find a new one. Not, not in every case. But what you should do is if you don't like what you're doing, I want to know about it. I want our people ops team to know about it. I want your manager to know about it because we need to get the best out of you. Now, when you do that, go tell your boss what you don't like, people ops what you don't like. And if you feel that there's not an environment that's healthy, that they're not really going to change, that's when you should say, you know, this is the great resignation, not the great retention. We're going to go find another place to work because it's a great time to be looking to make a change right now because so many people are looking for talent. I love the idea of the great retention. So we've got a couple minutes left. What do you want to make sure our listeners walk away with? I really think it's just the biggest enemy to talent optimization is doing things the way that we used to. The old boys club, the only hiring from certain schools, the unstructured interview from resumes. The tools are out there. You have to go on this journey of this new discipline of talent optimization to try things new ways. And you can even be an individual contributor. You do not have to have a team of people. If you're an individual contributor, make sure that your relationship with your boss is running well and through your peers. And just ask them, how can I give you what you need in our interaction? And you're starting on that journey, just asking that question. And they're going to respect you for that question because they're going to be like, wow, I I should maybe ask you the same thing. Yeah, that each of us has the opportunity to create the dream team. We do, we do. And when you're on a dream team, you know it and you feel good about it and you refer to it often and say, remember, there are people 15 years ago and they're like, that was such a great environment. We, we just crushed it. That's how you feel. And once you've been there, you have a better potential to create it again because you, you know what it felt like and you know what you did. You see some of those dynamics. Absolutely. And you can be a serial creator of dream teams because you crack the code. Crack the code. You have written the book. Tell our listeners again the book name, where to find it, where to find you. The Science of Dream Teams and the website for the book is dreamteams.io. There's a lot of great content and there's a sample chapter and you can even take assessments on yourself there and you won't be added to some marketing list. So that's how you can find more about me and a little bit more about the book, The Science of Dream Teams. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. For our listeners, thank you for joining. Thank you for being the best leaders, family members, community members 
that you can be, especially in a point right now where everyone's effort and heart is necessary to make our communities and our society better. Please continue to listen, apply the ideas you're hearing, share them with others, like the podcasts, and listen again soon. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.